Uh, I know who you folks are. You are the people that can stay up past uh, 11 o'clock. My kind of people were in the first service. I'm a real party animal till about 8 o'clock at night. And then my brain turns into mush. We had uh, some friends over last night, and uh, we were going to make a night of it. And about 11 o'clock, I said to Carolyn, let's go to bed so these folks can go home. And uh, that was the end of our wild evening. I would like to uh, have you turn to the 22nd chapter of the book of Joshua, please. You will probably note that the uh, bulletin says Psalm 32. I changed my mind about midway through the week. The... uh, bulletin is not an error. That's what uh, I told Sandy to put in the bulletin. But Joshua 22 is uh, the passage that we want to look at this morning. I want to do so because I, uh, for two reasons, I think it's more fitting for the day. And secondly, I would like to get uh, a little farther along in Joshua in order to keep uh, to our schedule. Uh, This is uh, the beginning of the new year, of course, and we're beginning to think about new beginnings. Uh, tuning up our performance for uh, 89. I was interested in an interview that, uh, a series of interviews that took place with some celebrities over the weekend. I just happened to flip on the television one night and they were interviewing a number of uh, the rich and famous athletes, uh, movie stars and others about their resolution for the new year. It was interesting to hear some of their, uh, some of their statements. Some of them were fairly inane. Uh, so I couldn't help but think of C.S. Lewis's comment that uh, a constitutional monarchy is the best way to go because we need a king to look up to. If we don't, we'll worship athletes, movie stars, and famous ex-prostitutes. Uh, not that the three are to be equated, but uh, nevertheless, uh, we're inclined to worship uh, the famous. And they were asking these people what they plan for the new year, and, and, and there were some interesting statements that were made. Some said they'd like to stop smoking this year, which is a, certainly a worthwhile uh, thing to do if you intend to uh, live much longer. Uh, but it was striking to me that so many of them said they weren't, weren't going to make any, any New Year's resolutions because they had not kept the ones that they made in 88. In fact, two of them said, the only resolution I'm making this year is not to make any more resolutions ever, which is uh, the Council of Despair. But uh, there's some truth in the fact that we do not keep our, our uh, good resolve. We all have intentions for the year. I'm sure you've made some. Uh, you will probably find that you're unable to do so. The uh, spirit is willing, but the flesh is incredibly weak. And uh, this is what we have to face. Uh, and therefore, I thought Joshua 22 would be a good passage because there's some counsel for us there about uh, this matter of resolve. The last three chapters in the book of Joshua are uh, actually sermons, last words from Joshua to the people of of Israel. They're somewhat in the nature of a halftime locker room talk, if I can use that analogy. The uh, task of conquering the land for Israel was half over. They had conquered almost all of the land. There were still a number of areas of the land left unconquered. They had divided the land, but they had to go back again and take the rest of the land. And what Joshua is doing in these, in these chapters is taking them back to the first principles, which is what a good coach will do. He will not get on his players' backs. 
He may have to correct. He may have to give some reproof. But he will basically call them back to the game plan and uh, the particular uh, uh, fundamentals that, uh, that are important to the game. This is what Joshua is doing. He's calling them back to the first things, to the things that really matter. Now, in chapter 22... The first eight verses contain his farewell address to the two and a half tribes that had settled on the east side of of the Jordan. As you know, nine and a half tribes settled in the land of Canaan proper in uh, in what today would be Israel. Two and a half settled in what it would be modern day Jordan or Syria over on the west side in Transjordan as we say. Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh settled there. They had gained their inheritance, the land had been divided, then they went into the land of Canaan with their brothers in order to wage war uh, for seven years. They were separated from their family, from their wives, from their girlfriends, from their children, uh, from their farms. Their wives and children had to keep up the farms. They were engaged in, uh, in battle. Now they were going back. They were going back to reclaim what was rightfully theirs. And Joshua sends them back with these... Uh, with this counsel. Uh, let's begin reading verse 1 of chapter 22. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have listened to my voice and all that I commanded you. This harks back to chapter 1, verse 12, where they were commanded by Moses and by Joshua to uh, fight alongside their brothers. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest. There's that theme again of rest in the land. Uh, The Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Therefore, turn now and go to your tents, to the land of your possessions, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways. And keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. And then in verse 8, he said to them, return to your tents with great riches and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, iron, and with very many clothes, divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. There must have been some uh, painful and and, uh, uh, poignant uh, times of, of parting. There's nothing like being comrades in arms to bind you together. Those of you that, inv- that have been in combat, uh, you know what that does for you in terms of your relationship with the people that have shared that, that danger. Uh, rock climbers tell me uh, that there is uh, a phenomenon they call the mystique of the rope. Uh, when you assault a cliff together, you're dependent upon one another. One man's holding the rope, uh, belaying you while you uh, traverse a difficult section. Your life literally depends uh, upon his uh, the way he, he handles the rope. And you come down off that climb with a, a relationship to one another that you could not otherwise have. And you can imagine what this was like. These men had fought side by side for seven years. There may have been situations where one man saved another's life. And uh, they were they were bonded together. So there must have been a lot of embrasos and a lot uh, a lot of tears and uh, uh, just a great deal of pain. I think in these uh, in this parting, mixed with with their joy at returning to their homes. They then went back to their homes, uh, very wealthy men. They uh, gained a great deal from the loot of war of the war, 
and they certainly were not impoverished by the seven years that they that they had been engaged in battle. They went back uh, as uh, as Joshua reminds them with silver and gold and bronze and iron and very many clothes, which they could divide with their friends on the other side of of the Jordan. These are all interesting facts, but the thing that stuck with me as I read uh, this passage is the very simple counsel which Joshua gives. Love the Lord and walk in all of his ways. This is what John would call abiding in in love. Uh, Remember that God loves you. Love him in return. Walk with him. Enjoy your, your relationship to him. Live out of that sense that you are deeply and greatly and eternally loved by God. Love him in return and just walk with him. How simple can you get? We try to complicate things with rules and regulations. And uh, Joshua takes us right back to the fundamentals. The thing that God wants of you is you go back to the land. The thing that will guarantee your integrity in the land. The thing that will permit you to make progress is loving God. Just love God. Respond to his love and, uh, and walk with him. Fellowship with him. That's nothing new. The, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses said to, uh, to the people, uh, The Lord your God is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all of your might. And that theme is carried all the way through the rest of, of, of Deuteronomy. That's the main thing. Love God. Center on him. As Paul would say, set your affection on things above. And remember, when Jesus was asked what was the greatest commandment, uh, he, he, he recited uh, he cited this, uh, uh, what, what Jews call the Shema, uh, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all of your mind. This, he says, is the greatest commandment. So again, he reduces everything down to this one essential element. The Jews had 613 laws, one law for every character in the Decalogue. Every Hebrew letter in the Decalogue had a corresponding law, of which the Pharisees had added, negative and positive laws. Uh, Jesus dismisses those. He goes back to the one fundamental element, love God. Now, he's not saying that that's all there is to living a life in relationship to God, but that's the beginning point. That's the foundational fact. That's the thing without which we, we're not going to make any progress. And then he says, go on and, and walk, uh, walk with him. Now, uh, almost immediately thereafter, there was trouble in River City, verse 9. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh returned home and departed from the sons of Israel to Shiloh. Tabernacle had been moved from Gilgal to Shiloh, which was just a little, uh, just a little farther to the uh, uh, to the west, and a little bit to the uh, to the south up on the ridge that runs up and down the land of Israel. The tabernacle was located there. The headquarters for the nation was located there in Shiloh. They departed from the sons of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, which is across the Jordan, to the land of their possession, which they had possessed, according to the command of the Lord through Moses. When they had come to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, very large in appearance. 
And the sons of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the side belonging to the sons of Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up against them in war. That's a remarkable statement. These were their comrades in arms. But now they were ready to go to war with them. It would be like uh, having the Civil War immediately after the Revolutionary War. Uh, they, they now were willing to go to war with their brothers because the unity and purity of the nation demanded it. The wisdom that's from above, James says, is not... Uh, is first pure and then peaceable. They would not operate on the basis of peace at all costs. They operated on the basis of purity. They had to deal with what they thought was sin uh, in, in the camp because the result would be disunity and impurity within the people of God. Uh, what had happened was this. Verse 10 describes for us the event. The two and a half tribes before or immediately after they went over into their portion of the land built an enormous altar, copied after the altar at Shiloh. There was a small altar which, on which the sacrifices were laid within the tabernacle. They made a huge replica of that altar and built it alongside the Jordan River. We don't know whether it was on the east side or the west side. There's a little bit of confusion, but it doesn't really make any difference. They built an altar. And the sons of Israel, who lived, the nine and a half tribes who lived to the west, were deeply concerned because they thought this represented the first steps of apostasy within the nation. These people, he said, are going to worship uh, at that altar, and the law prohibits that sort of worship. Now, if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 12, there is a law that prohibited worship in any place except the place which God chooses. Uh, it's, it's deliberately left ambiguous in Deuteronomy because God chose different places through this period of Israel's history. But eventually it became Jerusalem. That was the central sanctuary, and it was God's intention that all of Israel, no matter where they were scattered, come at regular intervals to worship together there around God. That was one uh, way of, of avoiding idolatry, getting involved with the, uh, with the worship of the nations in which the, these people eventually were scattered. So this was their concern. Here's a, an alternate altar. An alternate worship center, another cult center. They're going to start worshiping idols. And uh, they, got, they got concerned. Well, we've got to check into this. And uh, so they uh, uh, reassembled their, uh, their gear, and they, they were going to go off to war. Well, uh, fortunately, wiser heads prevail. And rather than assume that the nations uh, to the east were guilty of apostasy, they sent uh, representatives, one from each of the ten tribes located on the uh, on the west side of the Jordan, and this wonderful old fellow Phineas, the son of Eliezer the priest. Uh, you'd have to read the story of Phineas, wonderful old man of faith who averted tragedy during the time of the apostasy of Baal Peor. That story is told in Numbers. You can read that uh, on your own. It's in Numbers 13. But uh, this was a man who was known for his courage and his faith and his, 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 his integrity and his vigorous uh, desire to keep Israel pure. So Phineas and the ten chiefs uh, went to the two and a half tribes to the west and they spoke to them. Verse 16, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what, what are you doing? He says, what, what is this unfaithful act which you have committed against the God of Israel, turning away from following the Lord this day by building yourselves an altar to rebel against the Lord this day? 
Is not the iniquity of Peor enough for us, uh, from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day, although a plague came on the congregation of the Lord, that you must turn away this day from following the Lord, and it will come about if you rebel against the Lord today that he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. This idea of all Israel comes into the picture again four times. The idea of uh, the entire nation being affected by this apostasy is brought to the fore. What, what a part of the nation did would affect the entire nation. A little bit of leaven, as, as Jesus said, leavens the whole lump, or as Paul said, leavens the whole lump. So this, uh, this, this, this wickedness has to be dealt with. If we don't, God will be angry with the whole congregation. If, however, the land of your possession is unclean, if it's unfit for worship... Then, you know, if you feel that, that somehow you need an altar over there so you can purify the land, don't, don't do that. Come over here, he says, to our side. Cross into the land of the possession of the Lord where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us. Wonderful offer. Very self-sacrificing. Almost a fourth of the nation would be taken into the, uh, to the nine and a half tribes on the west, and many of their possessions would have to be given up. They'd have to redivide the land. But that's all right. He said, if you feel that you cannot worship God over there, come over here. We'll give up our rights so you'll have a place to, to worship God. Only, he says, don't rebel against the Lord or rebel against, uh, rebel against us by building an altar for yourselves beside the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan... The son of Zerah act unfaithfully in the things under the ban, and wrath fall on all the congregation of Israel. And that man did not punish alone in his iniquities. See, here again is concern for the corporate life of Israel. What happens to one will happen to all. Uh, as, as, as they say, the man drives the nail in and turns the board over and gives it a few taps on the other side to bend, bend it down. He, he wants to make this fact abundantly clear that what you're doing is going to affect all of us. We must face this thing together. And we are willing to go to war if it's necessary to purify Israel. Well, as the story goes on, I'm not going to take time to read it. It's rather, rather lengthy. The uh, sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh explain. Uh, they say, no, this is not an altar for worship. We don't plan to sacrifice grain offerings and burnt offerings on this altar. That's not the purpose of it. It's a symbol. It's a witness, they say. That's the word that's used in verse 27. They said, let's build an altar, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice. Rather, it shall be a witness between us and you and between your, our generations after us that we are to perform the service. That's uh, the, the word is the word that's used for the outward service, the worship of the Lord before him, that is, in the central sanctuary, with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings, that your sons may not say to our sons in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. As you read through the passage, you'll see, what, uh, you'll see their thoughts. They were afraid that at some future date they would cross the Jordan to worship in Jerusalem and the sons of Israel would say, you don't belong to us. You're a part of the pagan nations. You have no part with Israel. You cannot worship here. They say, all right, in, in order to forestall that, uh, that sort of situation, we're going to build an altar right here to remind us that the true altar is in Jerusalem or Shiloh or wherever the God places his name. And we are a part, we are a part of, of your congregation. We belong to you. We worship the same God. So it was a symbol. It was a sign. Now, was it wrong? 
No. No, there's nothing wrong with the altar. Memorials and symbols uh, are helpful. But as the story goes on to relate, the problem with the altar is that an altar like this can become the reality where, in fact, it symbolizes a reality. The name that was given to the altar is significant. Verse 33. When the sons of Israel heard this report, this explanation, they were pleased. And the sons of Israel blessed God, and they did not speak of going up against them in war to destroy the land in which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad were living. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad called the altar. Now, uh, my text has in italics, witness. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it will say witness, because the translator supplied that word thinking that that was the name of the, of, of the altar. But that was not the name of the altar. The altar had a long name. And the name of the altar is, is given in what seems to be an explanatory note. My text says, For, and then again in italics, they said, It is a witness between us that the Lord is God. But the text actually says, The sons of Gad, the sons of Reuben, called the altar, quote, It is a witness between us, what? That the Lord is God. So they put things back in proper perspective. The symbol didn't matter. That pile of stones, whatever it was, and wherever it was, and whatever it represented, didn't matter that much. What mattered was the reality uh, that lay behind it. This notion that it's the Lord who is God. In other words, we're simply doing what, what Joshua encouraged us to do. To remember that the Lord is God to love him and to worship him and to walk with him. That's what matters. And that's what will guarantee the unity and the purity of this body of believers. No symbol will do that. No external exercise will do that. No program, no activity will do that. The only, the only thing that will guarantee the integrity of, of the body of Christ, the only thing that will, that will guarantee that we'll, we will go on walking with God in purity and in unity is that we will together love Him and walk with Him. Most of the seminaries uh, in the, uh, among the uh, Ivy League colleges, such as Yale, Harvard, Princeton, all began as evangelical, conservative, orthodox seminaries. They were initially chartered to train young men for the ministry. Uh, their charters state that. And if you go back and look at their uh, doctrinal statements, they are extremely orthodox. But today, if you look at their doctrinal statements, by and large, they are not. They are what we would call liberal seminaries. How did this happen? Did they not have an adequate doctrinal statement? No, it had nothing to do with anything. Uh, somewhere along the line, someone stopped yearning for God, seeking after Him, loving Him, wanting to walk with Him. And that's what caused the eventual deterioration of their theology. Uh, we send college students off every year to university and their faith falls apart. And we say they need to know more theology. Well, perhaps they should. We didn't adequately train them in apologetics. Well, perhaps we didn't. But the reason why people fall apart and lose their faith is not because they don't have a theological foundation. It's because they stop cultivating their relationship with God and they drift away. No organization can maintain the unity and purity of, of, of that body unless people within that body are willing to love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and all their strength and then 
will continue to walk with him. In other words, they will abide in his love. We, we have debated from time to time the nature of our doctrinal statement. And we all have come to the, uh, to the conclusion that there simply is no doctrinal statement, as good as it may be, that's going to guarantee the purity of this body. The only way, the only way we can guarantee the integrity of this body is if every one of us will seek after the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul. And all of our mind. That's the best counsel anybody could give us. And that was the counsel that Joshua gave, uh, gave to the people. We are so inclined to leave rules and regulations on ourselves. There, there are things we must do. I, I, we, we, understanding God's will and walking after his, his will is, is important. But there is no rule or regulation that will keep us walking after God. And the problem is, once you start doing that, the rules just multiply. And they become onerous and burdensome and difficult, and they don't work. They don't work. As, as, as the Scripture puts it, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, let, me, let me read something to you. It's very interesting. I came across this just this past, this past week. A young man was eager to follow Christ. He asked what he should do. This is what he was told. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and stop eating white bread. You cannot take warm baths or shave off your beard. To shave... uh, Now, this may be true. I don't know. Uh, To shave... To shave is to lie against him who created us because it is an attempt to improve upon his work. You say, oh, that is errant nonsense. That's balderdash. I mean, what is this? That is a second century catechism. That's what young Christians in the church in the second century were taught. Only wear white clothes. And we say, that is nonsense. And I keep asking myself, what nonsense will we find in the 22nd century that, that we are imposing upon people today? And our Lord just keeps it very, very simple for us. He says, 1970, what is this, 89? <laughs> I told you it was a late night last night. <clears throat> 1989? What must we do? Just love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And walk with Him. That's what He wants. He keeps it very simple. Very, very simple. I, we've talked so much about this in the book of Joshua. The need to, to just keep centering on Him. Because that's what our hearts hunger for. Without fellowship with God, our hearts ache. We, 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 we organize our lives to try to get what we want, a good education, a car, a condo. We try to manage our lives to get a better job. We try to package and market ourselves to get married or whatever it is because we think that this is what's going to satisfy us. But there's always that, that ache. There's no payoff. Uh, Oscar Wilde said, in this life, there are only two tragedies, not getting what one wants and getting it. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
you you have arrived, and you have what T.S. Eliot calls destination sickness. You're there, you have it all, and you don't want any of it. That's what that's what Oscar Wilde is talking about. All of our life, we think that certain things will satisfy us, and we start out to pursue them, and we attain them, and we discover that the ache is still there. What is that ache? Well, that's God's depths calling to ours. That's what Psalm 42 says: deep calling to deep. It's God saying, "Come closer." He's the author of that of that hunger, and what we must do is respond to it. That's God saying, "I love you." That's God saying, I'm seeking a relationship with you. I want you more than anything else in the world. I'm seeking you to worship me. And our response is simply to worship him, to come into his presence, to enjoy him forever, to respond in devotion to his love and to walk along with with him. Now, some of you, I'm sure, have a hard time loving God. It, it may be because of your past. You were taught something about God that may not be true. Or, uh, to some extent, uh, Sigmund Freud is right. Our concepts of God very often come from our fathers. Not the true concept of God. You know, he argued that we believe in God and we, and we construct a God this way, and it is a construct. There's no God out there because of certain impressions we gain from our childhood and from our father where, where he was wrong is that what that is is a distortion of God. And perhaps you, you've grown up thinking that, that God is a bully and that God mistreats you and he's out to get you and he is frowning at you when you fail and he does not like you when you don't measure up. And those are the concepts that, that we have of God that, that scare us, they frighten us off. I, I mentioned before my son... Uh, one night, Randy, when he was real small, crying because he was afraid. He was afraid of the dark. And uh, so I reminded him that God was in the room with him, and it scared him out of his wits. He, he wanted to get in bed with us because his image of God was the Wizard of Oz with lightning and thunder and, and some oh, cruel, capricious person back there who's fiddling with the dials. And he didn't understand. It's a good thing to have God in the room with you. You may be feeling that way today. I really don't want God in the room because I think he's scowling at me. I think he doesn't like me. But I want you to understand that he loves you very much. And if you want to know that, you must see him in Jesus. There are a lot of ways to know the love of God. But the greatest manifestation of the love of God is to look at Jesus. That's why he came, among other things is to show us what God was like. We're going to start, uh, as soon as we finish the, the series in Joshua, a series on the miracles of Christ. And the reason I want to do that is because I, I want to help you see that the miracles are not mere manifestations of the power of God. They're often portrayed that way. These are signs of Jesus' uh, authenticity, his office of Messiah, as though he, he came and did a few signs, and then he said, See there, I'm who I say I am. But that's not what the miracles are, are, were designed to do. The miracles are designed to show us what God is like. They're vivid portrayals of the, of the character of God and his concern for people. The weak, the fallen, the mentally deranged, the demon-possessed, those that are, that are helpless and hurt by life. The miracles were performed for them not just to show us that God is powerful and that he can do these things. They're not random displays of power. 
uh, Weissel, the uh, Jewish historian, at the end of his life said, I'm terribly alone, alone without God in man, without love or mercy. And John Stott says in commenting on that, that closing note, he never saw God in Jesus hanging on the cross. See, once you see that, you cannot miss the fact that, uh, that God loves you and you can abide in that love. Uh, trying to figure out if I have enough time to do this. Would you turn to 1 John 4? Uh, th- uh, this is an add-on. And I always get myself in trouble. 1 John 4. By this love is perfected with us, I'm reading verse 17, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. I read that passage for, I don't know, 30 years and misunderstood it. I read it as though John is saying, if we have perfect love, we won't be afraid of people. I read it that way because the context of this passage is that if, if you know that God loves you, you can love others. That's, that's, John, that's clearly John's argument. Love comes from God. And once we're, we know we're deeply loved by God, we can love others. And I thought what he was saying is that once you know God loves you, then you can have perfect love, and you won't be afraid of people. You can love them. But I don't think that's what he's saying. If we go back to verse 17 and read it this way, by this love is perfected within us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. This has to do with fear when we stand before God. Will we be afraid of him? Will we shrink from his presence? No, because as he is, and if you notice the H is capitalized, the the Greek text says that one, which is John's way of referring to Jesus. Do you understand the significance of that statement? Because as Jesus is, so are we in the world. In other words, when we stand before God in that final day of judgment, it is as though Jesus Christ himself is standing there. We are standing there in him. We are perfectly loved. We are sinless in him. God sees us not as we are, but as we are in Christ. And as as our Lord is, so are we. And because that's true, he says there's no fear of judgment in love. But perfect love, that is, our Lord's perfect, relentless, pursuing, gracious, eternal, never-ending love for us, frees us from fear. We can walk into God's presence and enjoy him forever. We can walk with him. Don't have to be afraid of him. You see what that does. Once you begin to see God in Christ, you begin to love him, as Paul puts it. When you see the mercy of God, you just want to give yourself to him. Now, that's that's the first thing I would say. Just love God this year. I'd say that to myself. That's the hunger of my own heart. And secondly... I would say, I would encourage all of us to grow in that love, or as, as Peter puts it, grow in the sphere of grace. You see, understanding that we're loved to that extent sets us free to grow. We do not grow as we lay rules and regulations upon ourselves. There's no set of orders or rules that will change us very much. That's why these New Year's resolutions never work. We try and we try. But... But they never work. What will change us 
is the love of Christ. Abiding in that love, knowing that we're loved, knowing that he wants us to be a certain kind of person, motivates us. Knowing that we're forgiven, even when we fail repeatedly, it gives us hope. When we fail, we can pick ourselves up and we can go on and walk with him. He has not abandoned us. He hasn't turned his, his face against us. Knowing that, that we're so deeply accepted uh, changes us uh, profoundly. I uh, uh, was up uh, in the Riggins area here recently with uh, David, and I picked up a, a diary written by a Spalding. It was a portion of, of Spalding's diary. As some of you know, Spalding was sent to the Nez Perce Indians by the uh, the uh, Methodist Board of Missions in St. Louis. When Lewis and Clark came through that part of Idaho, they encountered the Nez Perce Indians. And the Nez Perce asked Clark, who is a Christian. By the way, you won't find this in many history books, but it's true. They asked Clark uh, to go back and, uh, to St. Louis and, and, and send someone with the white man's book. They had run across French trappers that had come across that part of, of the panhandle with Bibles. And they knew enough of the Bible to know that there was something they needed to know. And so they asked Clark to send help. And so he did. He did. He went back to St. Louis, and it took about 20 years to get everything in, in motion. But finally, Spalding came to the, to the uh, Coeur d'Alene area and set up his little mission there. His first, his first convert was uh, old Joseph, uh, who was Chief Joseph's father. Chief Joseph never became a Christian. It would be interesting to know what, uh, how history would have changed if he had. Because Chief Joseph, as you know, who, uh, was the one who was behind the uprising, this first uprising, uh, taking the advice of the young braves. But his father was a, was, a, was a devout believer. And the second convert that Spalding had was a man by the name of, uh, of James Connor, uh, who was married to a, a Nez Perce woman. And in the diary, I was fascinated by this, in the diary he, he, he tells about Connor's conversion and he tells about his former life. He was what we would call today an alcoholic and he had a number of other problems. And he told how his life had changed and when he gave his witness to the change in, in his life, he said, it's all because I love Jesus that I now hate what I once loved. Now, you see, that's the kind of change that grace makes. Once we understand that we're deeply, eternally loved by the Lord Jesus, then we begin to hate what we love, and we begin to love what he hates, and we can set our affection on on things above. Um, some of you may have read Charles Dickens' story of Nicholas Nickleby. Uh, Dickens has a number of Christian themes running through his, his books, as, as many of you know. He not only was concerned about the treatment of children in, in 19th century England, but uh, also about uh, other deeper spiritual matters. And in Nicholas Nickleby, he describes this little boy's life after he fled Dothaboy Hall, where the children had been so badly mistreated. It was a terrible, terrible place. There were countless acts of inhumanity. And uh, he finally left. And he befriended this little boy whose name was Smike, who was this uh, twisted, tormented uh, little boy that nobody else loved. He, no one had ever treated him like a human being until Nicholas uh, uh, befriended him. And uh, one night Nicholas woke up, and he found his little friend Smike. They were in a barn together. It was very cold, and they were hiding in the barn. And he found his little friend kneeling at his feet. And he looked up, and Smike said to him, 
Nicholas, I will go with you anywhere, everywhere, to the world's end, to the churchyard grave. Let me, oh, do let me. You are my home, my kind friend. Take me with you, pray. Wonderful, wonderful. What, what you see there is the love of Christ for that little boy. I'll follow you to the churchyard grave. Take me anywhere, everywhere. I, I want to walk with you. What, whatever, it, uh, whatever it means. That's one indication of the, of the measureless love of, uh, of, of the effect that the, that the measureless love of, of Christ has uh, upon us. I, uh, those are the two, two words I, I would like to leave with you. We need to move into our, our time of communion. I have a number of other things I'd like to say, but I, we're out of time. I want to say just that one thing. Abide in his love. Here's 1989, a new chance to learn more of God. Know that you're loved, deeply and greatly loved. Walk in that love. Experience once more the care and concern that he has for us, that, that perfect, complete love that sets us free. Let's pray once more, Lord, as, as we go back to these texts that take us back to the fundamental things. Our hearts are warmed and reminded that what really matters is our relationship with you. Everything else is peripheral. Everything else uh, has to be seen in its, in its, uh, in its relationship to the, the central thing, the main thing of loving you and, and walking with you. Lord, we want that to be a, a reality to us this year. We pray that as we look into the word and we see your gracious and loving acts, and as, it, as we look at the one who was the word, who, who was in every thought and, and act, uh, the, the visible word of God, the tangible expression of the love and concern that you have for us. As we see this, Lord, help us to abide in it. Help us to rest in it. And from that, from that sure foundation to begin to to walk with you and conquer more and more of the land that you've given to us. This is, this is the desire of our heart. We know we cannot change apart from grace. And so we want to grow within the sphere of your gracious and loving acts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.